Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to the Everything USC podcast on the Believe Podcast Network, Los Angeles' number one sports podcast network, the only place with a show for every team in LA and more. We believe in our teams. Do you believe? I'm Nara Wang, and yes, things have changed just a little bit as my co-host on the USC football podcast, Frosty Rucker, has moved on to do a show with his old Trojan teammate, Will Poole, and now, instead of just focusing on football, I'll be doing a show that covers all of USC athletics. So, I'm pleased to introduce my guest for the show, who is the host of the USC football postgame show on KABC, the flagship station for the Trojan Radio Network. In addition to being a play-by-play broadcaster on numerous events, including high school football for Fox Sports West and Prime Ticket, and college basketball on ESPN, to borrow his signature line, it's a pleasure and a privilege to welcome Sam Farber to the debut episode of the Everything USC podcast. Nara, thanks, man. You stole my signature line, so now I don't have anything else to say, but appreciate the opportunity to be here with you. I'm sure you'll have plenty to say, and we'll get into all of that today. If you enjoy listening to the show, please subscribe and rate the show wherever you find your favorite podcasts, whether it's iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, or TuneIn. You can also go to the website Believe.com, that's B-L-E-A-V.com, on social media at Believe Podcasts. For me, you can find and follow me on Twitter at Nara Wang Sports. That's N-A-R-A-W-E-N-G Sports. Sam, where can everyone find and catch up with you on social media? You can find me at Sam Farber Live on Twitter, although there's a lot less live event coverage stuff posted there as of late, but hopefully we'll be back to that come the fall. That's for sure. And I think the only way we can begin this show is by discussing the impact of the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic on the sports world. It has upended the schedules for basically every sport at every level across the globe, and there is still a lot of uncertainty on how leagues and organizations will proceed with no vaccine yet for the virus and stay-at-home orders and social distancing restrictions dominating the daily news cycles. Before we get to the macro view of it all, let me just kick things off by asking you, Sam, how has the coronavirus pandemic affected you personally? Well, fortunately for us, a lot less significant in impact than it has had on a lot of families and people across the country and all over the world. And our hearts go out to everyone who's had a really significant one. For me, I've gone from being a full-time play-by-play guy to being a full-time preschool teacher, which is a whole new set of challenges that I was not anticipating. But we're very lucky. I'm very lucky that I get to spend the extra time with my kids. And that's the glass half full of it. I hope they can overcome my lack of preschool teaching abilities and the fact that they're going to be an awful lot better at indoor t-ball than anything academic come the end of this but in terms of professionally like yeah sports stopped i was ready to get on a plane to go to sacramento and do the high school basketball state championships and then the night before i was supposed to take off everything was canceled so uh, everything ended abruptly and we're in a holding pattern but hopeful that things will get back to normal and like you said that we'll have a vaccine and be able to spare a lot more people a lot of heartache here Now, what is the Sam Farber teaching style like? How is it compared to your play-by-play style? It is try and find a way to get to nap time and to the end of my wife's workday and then to bedtime. That's the typical goal for me. Um, (laughs) So whatever activity keeps them busy, keeps them happy. 
I'm worried about what they might be missing from not being in school. But on the other hand, my kids' preschool teachers, the normal ones, assure us that they will be able to get to kindergarten one way or the other. So I'll just do the best I can, as I'm sure everyone out there is. And so let's talk about when spring sports basically got canceled and the winter sports in college seasons, the NCAA basically killed all of the championships for those sports. And they've decided that these athletes in the spring sports can get that extra year of eligibility, kind of like a redshirt year in essence. How do you feel about that decision? How do you think it's going to impact the people in these sports that have missed out on a full season? I mean, it's going to have a huge impact and there's no getting around that. And that's not anyone's fault in terms of the powers that be in the NCAA or any athletic department anywhere in the country. It's just a reality we're all dealing with. I think it's great that they are offering an extra year of eligibility. I would prefer if they would allow athletic departments to increase scholarships by 25% over the next four years. So if you're in a sport that, say, has eight scholarships available normally, make it 10 or 11. And that's because the schools are allotting money to the students based off what the NCAA allows. And if you're giving everyone an extra year, you kind of need to expand rosters and expand scholarships or else the benefit you're trying to give the seniors, you're going to end up hurting the incoming freshmen. And that should last four years. So that's one thing I would like to see happen. But at the end of the day, I honestly don't know how many athletes outside of football and basketball, which were completed based off my understanding of how the NCAA looks at this. I don't know how many of the other athletes are going to necessarily take up their school on this. If you were a senior, in say beach volleyball, unless you were going on tour, which is a very, very small number of the athletes competing, you were going into a career. And in a lot of sports where there aren't full scholarships for everyone on the roster, you're paying your own way. So it's nice that you have an extra year of eligibility, but in the case of a school like USC, you now have to shell out an extra $50,000 to use it. That might not be practical. So it's just terrible luck. I feel awful for all of those student athletes, college and high school, who are missing out on these experiences. But the one thing I think the NCAA could do in addition to allowing that extra year of eligibility is increase these scholarship opportunities. Whether or not the schools will be able to use it, who knows, but that opportunity should be afforded to them. I completely agree with you. That was my biggest issue with everything. I mean, it's nice to say, okay, you get an extra year of eligibility, but if there's still the same scholarship limit, again, does that mean you're taking away from incoming players? Or does that mean, well, we already allotted those scholarships for people who are incoming, so you're kind of out of luck. And that just doesn't make any sense to me. And I agree with you. They should find a way to remedy that. It being the NCAA, who knows if that will actually kind of get done. And in a lot of cases, you're right, you might have a lot of student athletes in these smaller sports, the so-called Olympic sports, who have already got jobs lined up and they're ready to move on to the next phase of their life, which doesn't necessarily involve athletics. And they might be turning down a really good job if they want to chase their athletic dreams. So it's really going to be on an individual case and school by school case to see how that turns out. Now, in terms of USC football, they got one day of spring practice in before everything got shut down. How do you feel that's going to impact the preparation for USC football? Probably significantly, but I mean, everyone's in the same boat. And again, you feel for these athletes and what they're having to deal with right now. But in the grand scheme of things, it's 
quite a bit smaller than what a lot of people are dealing with. So no one's going to cry out all night over not being able to play football when you're looking at 90,000 plus people have passed away, sadly, because of this. It should have an impact, not as much as it would have had two years ago when USC was going into a season anticipating a true freshman starting at quarterback. Keaton Slovis is back and has a rapport with his offensive coordinator, which is unchanged. And Graham Harrell, that's great news. Head coach is still there, so that makes things easier in terms of transitions. USC will handle it as well as anyone out there is going to be able to handle this. And I think maybe the biggest hope is that JT Daniels comes back so that you have a viable second option behind Keaton just in case, because if you were looking at maybe someone new having to take over the backup duties, that would be a a bigger issue. But we'll see how that all shakes out. Yeah, it is going to be interesting. Of course, JT Daniels entered his name into the transfer portal, and we'll see if that ends up sending him somewhere else. So far, no news that he is going anywhere else. There was news on another USC quarterback. Jack Sears has decided to transfer to Boise State. Everyone knew he was transferring. We all thought he was going to San Diego State, but it turned out that when Rocky Long decided to step away as head coach, he reopened his college search and ends up going to Boise State. Do you think that's a good fit for him there? I'm kind of interested considering they started last season with a true freshman quarterback in Hank Bachmeyer, and he got hurt a lot, and they ended up having another guy, Chase Cord, who is a redshirt junior, which is essentially the same year of Jack Sears, because Sears has two years of eligibility left, even though he's a grad transfer. And it seems like there's going to be a lot more competition there for Sears than if he had gone somewhere else. In that aspect of it, it's a very interesting choice. First off, Boise State's a phenomenal program. They do a great job up there and have churned out some really good quarterbacks too. In the sense of finding somewhere where there'd be a clear path to being the starting quarterback, it isn't necessarily Boise State. That doesn't fit the bill. Fresno State would be a clearer path, San Diego State, Colorado State, San Jose. I mean, there were a lot of Mountain West options that were out there for him, but he picked what I have to believe is the best fit for him. And one other interesting aspect of it, you brought up Hank Bachmeyer. So Jack Sears went to San Clemente High School, which is a great quarterback high school in Southern California, Sam Darnold being the most famous alum for all USC fans out there. But one thing no quarterback until Jack had done was win a section championship. And when he did it, the quarterback on the other side was Hank Bachmeyer, who's a couple of years younger than him in terms of grades. So kind of interesting that they'll be together. Hank Bachmeyer, I would assume, would be the leader in the clubhouse for the starting job, having started as a true freshman and won a game over Florida State. But Jack Sears has the high school championship ring. So we'll see how that pans out. It will be an interesting quarterback room up at Boise State. And we, of course, wish Jack Sears well up there. Now to talk about what's coming. Are there going to be fall sports at colleges and universities? There's still, like I mentioned in the open, so much uncertainty about what's going on with schedules and what teams can do, what schools can do, what leagues can do. And I just want a gut feeling from you, Sam. What do you think is going to be the landscape when September rolls around? My gut feeling right now is yes, because there is a lot of time between now and the start of the season. So there's a lot of time, and certainly the hope everywhere is that we as a country get a handle on this virus. So hopefully that has happened, and this is more or less in the rearview mirror, but of course that's at best 50-50 right now. 
there was a good sign in that the NCAA has kind of opened things up for athletes to return to campus starting in June. And that will be a good opportunity to, to see how these schools are handling it. Are they testing? If they are testing, that will give us an idea how many of these athletes are already exposed. Do they have antibodies built up? What is the procedure going to be team to team, university to university on if one person catches the virus, do you quarantine him? Do you quarantine the entire team? These are questions we just don't have answers yet to. So the fact that they're starting relatively soon gives us an opportunity to get some answers on just how widespread this is and how the schools will handle it. I think that's a great question because are you going to let kids back into facilities if they haven't been tested? Is that even safe to do? You would think that the schools would have to spend the money and test these student athletes when they get back before they start using the facilities because once you do test and someone's been positive and if you've been letting them in there and they've been working out with others and on equipment and things like that and I know all the new protocols are in place to deep clean everything as much as possible but there is still a pit you could say that people can fall into where someone tests negative at first and then they are living their lives and they're out and they're maybe not practicing the social distancing being back on campus campus and then they end up being positive two weeks later. How does that affect everything? So there's still a lot we don't know about how this is going to work, but I think it is going to be a good trial run now that the NCAA Division I Council has allowed the athletes to come back. It'll allow us to see what's going on and if there are testing protocols in place, how schools are handling it. And we still don't know it's going to be on a school-by-school basis in a state-by-state basis because how USC handles it may be different from how Alabama handles it and how Ohio State handles it. We just don't know. And that brings me to another question about in football, we've heard about these different conferences maybe doing their own thing, changing up their schedules. The Pac-12 has talked about maybe having a conference-only schedule. How is this going to affect the non-conference aspect of everything? I just don't know what teams are going to do if certain schools are going to play football and certain schools aren't and how that affects conference play. It's a very good question. There's a lot of unknown right now. I do kind of like the conference only philosophy. I've also heard of it been suggested, not necessarily by anyone official, but maybe a Pac-12 Mountain West one year alliance where you put the schools together based off of what certain states have kind of aligned. We've had geographical alignments between Washington, Oregon, and California to try and go after solutions together. So maybe that creates a mini conference for one year. There's just so much unknown right now. And in a certain respect, we are getting close enough to the season where you kind of need to get some answers. You got to figure out who's going to go where, when, if you are going to blow up the schedule that has been set. But it's also maybe a little early to say it's impossible for schools in different regions to play one another. We just really don't know enough just yet. So it's good that they're going to get the kids on campus or give an option for kids to be on campus and really get a sense of this. But even though that option is available, we don't know if it's something USC is going to allow or if California is going to allow. Like I said, I'm a preschool teacher now, so my kid's school is not open. I have a hard time believing that the state of California is just going to say, all right, no school can be open, but it's okay for the football team to go hang out on campus. That might get shot down from people whose pay grades are a heck of a lot higher than any of ours. But again, it gives us more information and that's what we need. I think the more information we can get from testing, the better we'll have an understanding of what this virus has already done to us locally here in Southern California and nationally and what we could expect if we do attempt a season in the fall or perhaps one later with only conference games. 
As of now, USC Athletic Director Mike Bones still says that USC is going to open their season on September 5th in Arlington, Texas against the University of Alabama. I personally think that the chances of that happening right now are going to be kind of slim, although, like you said, it is in a different state. So in theory, it's not going to be affected by the California rules. Texas has been a lot more liberal in reopening things. And hopefully, if we have a handle on how the virus is going by then, then it won't be an issue. But whether fans are going to be involved is a whole other thing. I don't know that we're going to have fans or at least significant numbers of fans at any event until there's a vaccine. I just don't think that it's safe, basically, if you put fans in danger like that. So... I think we're going to see a lot of empty crowds, even if there are sporting events in the fall. I would agree with that. I think we're a long, long way away from having fans. There's just no way to control for that many people coming together. You can even say, well, we'll do temperature scans going into the stadium. We've already assembled tens of thousands of people in parking lots before you get them to the scans. At that point, the virus, in theory, would have already spread. I would want to say one other point here. The NCAA has to take into account what happens in a worst case scenario if you allow the kids to play in the fall. If there isn't a handle on the virus and you are, in a sense, encouraging athletes to go back to school, and God forbid there is a spread within a team and either a player's parent or grandparent gets it from them from playing and passes away or a player passes away. These are the worst case scenarios that have to be thought of ahead of time because it's A, a tragedy, and B, an instant ending to any progress that would have been made. So you really have to think hard. Are you allowed to, in a sense, quarantine players on campus? Can you tell a bunch of 19 to 22-year-olds, you're going to live in this bubble and we're not going to let you out for any reason? They're having a hard enough time figuring that out at the professional level where they are paid. So to do that at the college level, again, stuff way above our pay grade that's hopefully being thought of and plans are being put in place for. And another reason you have to think about it, I mean, you don't want to talk about it, but it's there. If someone were to catch it and pass it on, the legal liability of lawsuits and anything like that that could occur out of that. I don't think schools want to deal with that either. So there are still a lot of things that need to be resolved before sports returns. And again, the differences between college and pros and the different conferences. If a team, say like USC, were to have an outbreak, how does that then affect the rest of the conferences play if you have a schedule set? Because is USC just off the schedule then? We don't know the answers yet. And hopefully in the coming months, we'll find out a lot more about yeah. this. And no, I mean, look at what shut things down in a sense for the NBA and really all of professional sports. It was one player on one team testing positive with the Utah Jazz. That kind of triggered everything. So if it's one player gets the virus and everything stops again, that's going to be an almost impossible hurdle to get over. I hope we can, but that's a very, very high bar, even though if you look statistically at the numbers, on average, it's a low percentage of the country that has it overall. Obviously, certain pockets more than others in Southern California is a pocket that is more than some. But if the bar is if any athlete tests positive for this, we got to shut this down. That's not possible to do right now. It's definitely not. And you've already heard MLB talking about in their return that one positive test isn't necessarily just going to shut things down. It would have to probably be more of an outbreak. And again, we will see what happens when the fall comes or when sports leagues start to get ramped back up again. And from there, we'll see how this goes. 
Again, if you enjoy listening to the Everything USC podcast here on the Believe Podcast Network, please subscribe and rate the show on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, and TuneIn, all of your favorite podcast directories. The website to find us is Believe.com, B-L-E-A-V.com, on social media at Believe Podcast. For me, I am on Twitter at Nara Wang Sports, N-A-R-A-W-E-N-G Sports. Sam, where can people catch up with you on the social media channels? You can find me at Sam Farber Live. A lot less sports tweets lately, a lot more me discovering baking and other things that I still don't think I have a talent for, but I'm trying to stretch my horizons here a little bit. Doing whatever we can, right, during these times, Sam. That's right. While you're waiting out the pandemic at home, you can still enjoy betting with our partner, betonline.ag. No NBA, NHL, or MLB, but don't worry. Bet Online still has hundreds of games, events, and sports to wager on, including the return of NASCAR, Madden and NBA 2K simulations, the UFC, plus poker and blackjack in their online casino. And be sure to check out the final dance, Bet Online's special featuring former Chicago Bulls Horace Grant. Bill Cartwright, Craig Hodges, and Ron Harper discussing the ESPN docuseries, The Last Dance. There is still fun to be had, so go to betonline.ag and use the promo code MYPOD100 to receive your welcome bonus on your first deposit. Again, that's betonline.ag and use the promo code MYPOD100. BetOnline, your online wagering solution. So at its meeting a couple of weeks ago, the NCAA Board of Governors announced its support of rule changes that would, quote, allow student athletes to receive compensation for third party endorsements, both related to and separate from athletics. It also supports compensation for other student athlete opportunities, such as social media, businesses they have started and personal appearances within the guiding principles originally outlined by the board in October, unquote. There is still a ways to go before these rule changes will be approved by the NC2A as a whole, and they wouldn't take effect until the 2021-22 academic year, but it seems to be another step in the right direction toward allowing student-athletes to profit from their name, image, and likeness. Sam, what is your initial opinion on this announcement from the NCAA Board of Governors? I think it's a really positive step. I think athletes should have control over their names, image, and likeness and be able to profit off of them. It does open a whole big can of worms here on how do you control this? I mean, some of the rules in place, you know, you can't have recruiting by schools or boosters based off of name, image, and likeness, enhanced payments or things like that. No pay for play. Some of these things are hard to police. The rules that are already in place have been hard to police. And USC has felt the sting of the NCAA more than most. The rules haven't necessarily always been adjudicated evenly in many people's estimations. So it does bring a lot of challenges, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't make the effort. You absolutely should. These athletes should have that control. I think it will enhance student-athletes' opportunities to stay on campus. If they feel the only way for me to make a living off of what I do is to go pro, ready or not, here I come, that's not always the best for the athletes. This gives them a little bit more control. Again, it opens up a lot of other issues that maybe we aren't anticipating, but it certainly seems to be the right move to me. And a lot of the what they call guardrails that they want to see in place, I happen to, I think, agree with a lot of them. 
I've always thought that if someone can earn money from something, I don't know why you're stopping them from doing it. As long as, again, if you're not allowed to identify yourself with the school logo, conference logo, trademarks, and other stuff, well, NFL guys can't do that if it's not an NFL sponsor. So it's the same deal there, and they can identify themselves by their sport and school, and they can't use the logos. That's fine. I got no problem with that. I have no problem with schools not footing the bill for any of the extra money, that they give up the scholarship and the cost of attendance, and what kids can earn on their own is what kids can earn on their own. I don't see what the big issue is. Obviously, the NCAA is saying all these things, which is, like you said, a step in the right direction. But they're also behind the scenes still spending over a million dollars since the start of 2019 on lobbying the federal government to try and put in guidelines and basically stop these individual states' legislation from taking a foothold. Again, a lot of this started with California Senate Bill 206, the Fair Pay to Play Act that California Governor Gavin Newsom signed into law in September of 2019 that is supposed to take effect on January 1st, 2023. It was put in with that time frame to give the NCAA and to give other states and the federal government time to come up with something better or something more general or something more universal. And you can see the NCAA is still trying to fight it while they're saying that they're going to embrace it. I think there's still a dichotomy there within the NCAA about whether they actually want this to happen. Yes, I would agree with you. I mean, they're playing both sides of the argument in in that respect. It's a difficult one. It's a challenging one. For a long time, the NCAA has had this mindset that these are amateur athletes, student athletes that can't be paid. And they have been stricter than anyone would imagine is realistic on certain entities on things like how much book money they get or how much food is available to student athletes. I mean, this has been an issue for a long time. There's been rumors forever rumor in quotation marks that UCLA basketball had a pipeline to certain boosters that would take care, again, air quotation marks around, take care of student athletes. And the old sayings that if Alabama does something wrong, that Alabama State gets the punishment. It's not been a fair playing field or a level playing field for a long time. But I think this does give more opportunities for student athletes to have the rights to their name, image, and likeness, which they should have. And where we go from there It's going to be a challenge, but it's one that is fairer to the student-athletes, and that is the most important thing. And let's talk about how this would affect the kids at USC, specifically current players and being able to recruit and sell SC as a place where you can maybe get yourself some NIL love from local businesses or something like that. Do you think there's going to be a big sea change among USC athletes in terms of opportunities? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we're in the second biggest market in the country, not just the second biggest market, but one where a lot of television production happens to begin with. So think about national commercials, even you're just a lot closer to things here and you have a lot more attention on you here. It's going to be really interesting how the NCAA chooses to handle this. And I'd say a school like Oregon that is so tied in with Nike and has been for so long, how do you referee that situation? If Nike decides to sign the entire Oregon football team, can you keep them from doing that? Can you say that that's an unfair level for them? or police USC on different things if they have their own boosters. But just looking at it in general, of course, USC has advantages that most other 
programs do not, based off geography, based off the history of the program, the prestige of the program, the attention that's on it, regardless of the sport and the season, and even the head coaches and the previous success, USC always has a spotlight on it and will always give advantages in terms of money-making opportunities for these players to benefit off their own success. And I think that Oregon example you brought up is a great one because in my plan of it, I would say that if you are a sponsor of a school program, then you cannot also be a part of getting an individual player's signed endorsement deal. So if Nike is a USC sponsor, Oregon sponsor, sponsor of many schools around the country and provide the shoes and athletic apparel for a lot of these schools and teams, then that means that they can't sign the athletes from those schools. It's basically a choice between supporting a school with sponsorship or supporting players with sponsorship. In my view, I think that would be more fair and that would cut out some of the possible dirty, underhanded, under the table kind of payments or just like you said, a blanket. Oh, we're sponsoring every player on the team from the star player down to the walk on player. I mean, that can basically upend everything. And that's where I'm kind of with the NCAA on that, that there have to be some sort of guidelines in place, obviously, to police everything where it doesn't get out of hand and you go back to the old SMU pony excess days back then when guys are getting free cars for their grandma and everything like that. I hear what you're saying. I just think it's really hard to police. It's hard to police the rules now. There's A, not a a lot of cops on the beat until something does kind of come to light through reporting, either by the school itself or by the media. It's just very hard to police. I think in general, you want the student athletes to get the best out of everything. They're the ones who, in a sense, are the ones who are earning this opportunity. So they should have as much available to them as can be possible. How you police, all right, if let's throw another brand out there, let's say Adidas gave $10 million to USC to do the uniforms for the athletes in five years or something like that. That money has to be used towards X and can't be used towards players, but Adidas could sponsor whatever players they want. I mean, the more gray area you put in there, the more you're going to find issues with it. I think athletes, if they're good enough to be a Nike athlete or an Adidas athlete or whatever it is, then they're good enough and they deserve that opportunity. And you shouldn't cloud things by saying, well, you've already sponsored the school, so you can't sponsor the players. They're going to find a way to do it anyway. So let's not try and find a way to penalize players and just accept that this is going to create an even wider canyon between the haves and the have-nots. And this is what collegiate sports are going to look like here in 2022 and beyond. Now, do you really think this is going to change which programs actually get the best players? It seems like the best programs are going to be the ones who are going to have more opportunities as it is. So how does that really change Alabama and Ohio State and even USC from getting the best recruits when they already usually get them anyway? That's true. Short term, places like Alabama, I don't think will be as affected as much because they still have Nick Saban and they still have this amazing track record of success. But 10, 15 years down the line, I mean, let's just be honest, there's not as much money going through the University of Alabama as there is at, say, USC or Oregon, for that matter, with the ties to Nike. So I think there would eventually be shifts, but it's hard to say, Nara, it really is. I think overall, there will not be as much of a change as we think. 
schools like, say, UC Santa Barbara are already at a massive disadvantage compared to a USC to begin with. So now to throw in this monetary benefit should make the gap a little bit wider. But how much wider are we really talking here? You know, if UC Santa Barbara is going after a basketball player that USC is, likelihood is USC is probably going to get them anyway. So I don't think in that respect it'll have as much of an effect. But you might see schools that are in bigger media markets or who have bigger alumni pockets be able to do more. That's just the way business works. And that doesn't mean that schools that are in non-major markets can't compete. Schools like Oklahoma State and Alabama as well, you know, they've got alumni who run major businesses. Arkansas is tied to Jerry Jones. There's a lot of programs out there that could benefit It's a lot of unknown, but it's the right thing to do for the athlete. They should have control over this. They shouldn't be getting their eligibility taken away because someone helped them get a flight so that their mom could attend a game. That's just kind of petty. Thinking about how Chase Young got a game taken away from her, a couple of games taken away from him at Ohio State. That's the stuff that gets people angry. That stuff shouldn't happen. Should an entire team, you know, should be common knowledge that, hey, if you go to Alabama, you're immediately going to get $100,000. No, that probably shouldn't be the rule either. But should we be making players ineligible because they got shoes when they were 13 and didn't have the money? No, that shouldn't be happening. And I think everyone is kind of trying to work towards that. Yeah, and I agree with you on that. I think the Chase Young example is a perfect one of the ridiculousness of what the NCAA rules that are currently in place do to student-athletes. And that's why, to me, if you can eliminate these big-ticket sponsors that already sponsor a school from being involved, that can help legislate and regulate everything in a more fair manner for the schools that are in smaller media markets, for the smaller schools in lesser conferences or mid-majors. Because I think Nike, obviously, sponsors Alabama athletics. Why wouldn't they want to continue putting in money? Because they have a vested interest in how that school is doing. And if Alabama gets good recruits, why wouldn't they try and shovel money that way? So if you eliminate that possibility, it's not like those kids are still not going to be able to find other ways of making money. They can do it through social media now. They can do it with a local car dealership. They can do it by signing autographs. Like that was the thing to me. You can criticize Johnny Manziel for a lot of things, but when he was trying to make some money signing his autograph... I got no problems with that. If a kid can make money off of signing his name to a piece of paper, go for it. I just don't have an issue with that. But I think you have to separate some of the big business things between if you're tied in with the university, then you're tied in with the university. And you can wait that one year to sign Zion Williamson if you're Nike. I think that's the real takeaway from it is that these big companies, if that rule is in place, they'll just wait the one year for the college basketball player who's going to come out in the draft. And that rule may end up getting changed in the next couple of years anyway by the NBA. Or they'll wait a few years to get the football player because in the grand scheme of things, they're going to make more money having a relationship with the universities than they are with individual players one at a time. I hear what you're saying, but what if Zion Williamson, I mean, he had that shoe explosion when he was in college at Duke. And what if instead of being out a week, it was more of an Alex Smith style injury and he's potentially done forever. In addition to being just an absolute tragedy to say that, well, he should just wait a year to get paid when he doesn't necessarily have to. I think that's what we're looking at here. I think when you're looking at, you know, and this isn't the case across the board, but there's a lot of college athletes who are in positions of need financially and would really benefit. And that's some of the pressure that is trying to be alleviated by the NCAA to make it. So I think in an altruistic way of looking at this, you're trying to say, I don't want students to be put in a position where you have to choose between education and going pro. 
and trying to weigh the pros and cons over an amount of money that in the grand scheme of things might not be that much. If whatever that business is, is operating under whatever rules are set out there and the rules make sense, I don't have a problem with the athletes getting money from these outside entities. I think it is problematic to say, well, USC can just pay whoever they want to come and other schools that don't have as much money can't. I think that brings up other issues of fairness. But if a company wants to sponsor a kid, then they want to sponsor a kid. And I think they should have the right to do that. I think you can put certain guardrails in to make sure that they are students as well. Saying like, hey, you can't just pretend to go to school and collect money for four years playing as a Kentucky basketball player or an Alabama football player. You know, you can't do that. You have to be working towards the degree. Otherwise, you are taking a spot away from someone else who could be getting the benefits of school that doesn't have the opportunity. I think that's the biggest protection I would have out there. I mean, of all the scandals that have happened in the last two decades, and there have been a lot of them, unfortunately, in college athletics, the North Carolina one is the one that bothered me the most. You're saying that these athletes, their one form of payment is supposed to be an education and you're giving them a fake degree. I thought that was just outrageous. So I think make the rules as simple as you can and easy to comprehend for the athletes. It's too complicated right now. And make sure that they are working towards a degree, which is supposed to be the one thing the schools can give. I think the simpler you can make it, the better with those two goals in mind. Right. And again, I think even if Nike couldn't pay Zion, other people would be paying him. I think he'd be fine. He would have been making money. It just wouldn't have been from Nike for a year. So I think there's other ways that guys are going to be able to find ways to make money. And again, I'm all for paying these athletes from outside sources. I just think there has to be a way to, again, if schools aren't allowed to be involved in the payment of it, and I don't think that should be a part of it, I, again, I'm all for just the scholarship, then these big school sponsors should have to be regulated as well, in my opinion. So we'll see what happens. But like you brought up with that North Carolina academic scandal, that's something that the NCAA rules didn't cover. And that's why UNC is able to get away with that because their rules covered petty things like how much food a guy can have at their training table instead of things like that. So in the end, final question on this subject, do you actually trust the NCAA to do the right thing for college athletes? I trust that they'll have the right intent. It's hard. It really is hard. I mean, think of it like any other police organization. We don't live in a police state where people are just constantly watching to make sure you didn't break the rules on anything. Obviously, you're paying more attention to certain crimes than others, or you should be. But some of these rules are too tedious, in my opinion, and they just nitpick too much. I think they're put in place with good intentions. I hope they're put in place with good intentions, but they're very difficult to enforce. And it comes down to how much attention is on a program. Some of the stuff that was going on with Louisville recruitment, some of it 10 years from now might be legal in terms of the payment stuff. Some of it in terms of enticements that they were trying to put out there for athletes are outrageous and should be against the rules. So I think the NCAA is going to operate with good intentions. I hope they do. And I think in terms of enforcement, look, it comes down to how much are the schools themselves going to police themselves? How much are athletes going to speak out if they see something unfair happening? It's really tough. It's a tough thing to enforce. I do not want that job. And so I, I try not to be overly harsh on the people that are trying to do that job. But there's only so many cops out there on the beat. So if they start watching to see if school A has broken the rule on how many cupcakes can be on the training table, then they're going to miss school B changing kids' grades. And hopefully they just have the right mindset on what they're focusing on. 
If you enjoy listening to us, you can subscribe and rate the show wherever you find your favorite podcasts, whether it's iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, and TuneIn. The website to find us at is Believe.com, B-L-E-A-V.com, on social media at Believe Podcasts. For me, I am on Twitter. Find and follow me at Nara Wang Sports, N-A-R-A-W-E-N-G Sports. My guest today, Sam Farber. Where can people find you? I'm on Twitter at Sam Farber Live. And now as we wrap up the show, getting to the closing parts of it, I do want to get into a little bit of the USC football recruiting because the next show I'm planning to have is with recruiting analyst Greg Biggins of 24-7 Sports and your partner on high school football broadcasts here on Fox Sports West Prime Ticket. So we're going to talk a little bit about that as kind of a whet your appetite for the big show with Greg that I'm planning. But before we do that, Some news that came out on future scheduling for USC football, an interesting one because of who it involves. The University of Mississippi has scheduled to play USC in 2025 and 26, beginning with the game in LA before the return trip out to Oxford, Mississippi. Of course, the new coach at Ole Miss is Lane Kiffin, former USC football coach. First of all, it's obviously enticing because of the Lane Kiffin involvement, but what are the odds that Lane Kiffin is actually going to be the coach of Ole Miss when 2025 rolls around? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. trying to figure out uh, who's going to be where that far ahead in college football is uh, extremely difficult. I don't know what the odds are. I would imagine there would likely be some movement just based off of his track record, hopefully for him in a positive sense. But Ole Miss is a great program, and we'll just see. I think it should be celebrated that the two schools have signed the contract and they're going to play the games. These type of moves should be celebrated because if you don't, then you end up with a school like an SEC school playing directional school in that state or playing FCS programs all the time. I think this is the way to go. These are great games. My first USC game I ever went to was USC Virginia Tech. I happened to be going to undergrad in the D.C. area. And it was just outstanding to see that level of competition at the time and to see them in that kind of venue. I think it's great. So Kudos to Athletic Director Bone for getting this done. Kudos to the programs for signing the deal and for electing to play one another rather than Ole Miss playing East Mississippi Valley State or someone else out there. This is a positive all the way around. I completely agree. I think that schools should be doing more of this. And USC, of course, has always been one of the teams that does this. They have. And they replaced UC Davis with the Fuhrer over scheduling an FCS school and replaced them with San Jose State when Mike Bone took over. And that is something that a lot of USC fans are happy about, being one of just three schools along with UCLA and Notre Dame, their biggest rivals, to have never scheduled a Division One AA or FCS school as they are now known. So I think it's great. And we'll see if... Lane Kiffin's around for those games. We'll see if Clay Helton's around for those games. Who knows? That's a long ways away. But Lane Kiffin, that would be six seasons in at Ole Miss. He's never been anywhere for longer than five seasons. I don't even know if he's been five seasons anywhere. So it'll be interesting to see. But it is good for that to happen for both schools' programs. And if anything else, it'll be the first time the schools ever play each other. So it'll be fun for a lot of SC people to get into Oxford, Mississippi and check out the scene down there. I've heard great things about seeing a game down in Oxford, Mississippi. So we'll see what happens there in 2026. But again, like I said, let's talk a little bit about the football recruiting. 
there was a lot of discontent among USC fans based on the recruiting class that is entering USC this year. It was a small class, not a lot of seniors, so not a lot of spots, but not a highly rated class overall. And so a lot of fans were unhappy about that. But it's shaping up that the 2021 recruiting class is going to be a top 10, maybe top 5 class as it stands right now. A lot of guys led by quarterback Jake Garcia, who are 4 stars, 5 stars, who are looking at USC. What do you think is the track and what's been the change for USC in recruiting? Well, the mentality has been a big impact on recruiting. You know, win the West, I think, is the mantra. And they're going out there and doing it. So kudos to the staff and the newcomers to it for getting out there and working hard and signing these kids in a very difficult time period to do so. Obviously, the pandemic has had far greater impacts in other aspects of our lives and specifically the families of people who've lost someone. But for recruits, it's been much more difficult to be in front of coaches and for coaches to go out there and see players in the summertime. That said, I'm really excited about this class that they have committed. They're committed. They're not signed. So a lot can change, obviously. But Jake Garcia, I saw him last year when he was at Narbonne High School. Great arm for me personally. And you mentioned you have Greg Biggins. I'll be interested to hear that show because he's awesome. He knows this stuff way better than me. But of the high school quarterbacks I have seen who have committed to USC, Jake Garcia just in person has been the most impressive. Just arm strength and accuracy. I was very happy seeing him as a player and excited for USC to see him heading there or wherever he chooses to go to when it's all said and done. But he's a heck of a player. And then there's a lot of big names from big programs on the list so far. But one trend that I think USC fans should be particularly excited about is some of the big men they have committed. In particular, Jay Toya from Grace Brethren listed at 6'2", 350. I mean, he is a huge kid, a huge talent. Max Gibbs, uh, an offensive lineman at St. John Bosco, 6'6", 360. Again, huge kid, huge talent. USC, for a very long time, has had a reputation of being the place to go to get quarterbacks and wide receivers and skill position players, defensive backs. There have been no problems there. The one place that there's been criticism has been in the trenches. That's been the biggest advantage for places like the SEC over West Coast schools in general. So to see USC get some of these big name kids and these big bodied kids, that's a real positive sign and should bode well for the future. I completely agree. I think that's where you build a team is in those trenches. And we will see, and I'll be happy to talk more about it with Greg, but definitely want to touch on it with you as well. And just one last thing on it. A lot of this pandemic has forced these USC assistant coaches that were coming into the program, like Dante Williams was coming in from Oregon, Craig Nivar from the state of Texas, and they've been stuck at home and they haven't been able to go out and they're not even in LA and yet they're pulling this off. Do you think that the pandemic, this change in how you have to recruit guys has maybe even actually helped USC in a way because you can't go and get seduced by certain schools, facilities and things like that? Well, USC's facilities are great as well. I mean, look, USC is a major brand in college football, has been, always will be, I would think. There are just advantages there that other schools don't have. So that's why there were so many alarm bells going off last year when USC was not ranked very high, not just nationally, but within the Pac-12 to say that a school like, and these are great programs, by the way, but Washington State just should not win recruits over USC just based off the program's pedigrees and a variety of factors. So when things like that start happening, it gets a lot of people's attention. 
But USC has a lot of built-in advantages, being in Los Angeles, having the championship history. Those things, in a sense, should help recruit themselves and add in the fact that you've got some new coaches who have had a lot of recruiting success. Some have been in the footprint, I mentioned uh, coming from Oregon. Some have been from other major recruiting areas like Texas. Those are all positives. But at the end of the day, if you call up and say, hey, I'm from USC, that's like calling someone up and saying, hey, I work for Apple and I have a job for you. There are certain brands in any business that come with that prestige. And when someone starts coming at you from them, it gets your attention. And USC is certainly that in college football. That's always going to be an advantage. And it's good to see that that advantage from a USC fan perspective is winning out. Sam, great chopping it up with you. We touched on a lot of things today, and I thought we had a great conversation. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, Nari, you and me both uh, appreciate you having me on. Thanks for the time. And again, hoping that we all get past coronavirus safely and with our health. That's the most important thing. And then second would be that we get back to sports and everything in our normal lives come the fall. Yeah. And now I'll let you get back to being preschool teacher, Sam Farber. (laughs) Appreciate it, bud. For my guest, Sam Farber, I'm Nara Wang. Thanks for joining us for episode one of the Everything USC podcast on the Believe Podcast Network, Los Angeles' number one sports podcast network, the only place with a show for every team in L.A. and more. We believe in our teams. Do you believe? And as always, as I end every show, please remember to fight on. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.